Hi, I'm Will Thomas. And I'm Tim Jackson, Doctor of Economics at the University of Liverpool. And this is the Post-Crisis Economics Podcast. It occurs to me that so often politicians talk about how important the economy is. and The issue is so huge, it often eclipses other issues that emerge in society. Even when things like coronavirus happen, everyone is asking, well, how do we pay for this? It always seems like money is the biggest concern. Now, I get this feeling money and wealth has become the default measure for success. It seems like the one thing nobody wants to spoil. And I wonder, how did we get into this position? And I suspect it's something you'd need to ask a historian or an anthropologist or something. But from a purely economics perspective, how did wealth become our de facto measure of success? When you look at countries, you look at GDP and things like this. And even when you look at individuals, you know, there were many people who thought Donald Trump would make an excellent president because he was perceived to be wealthy. From your perspective, how have we ended up at this point where money seems to be the be-all and end-all when there are so many other measures of success? Right. So, I mean, it's a great question because money, it is a yardstick. It measures things. It's, it's a unit of account. It measures what we can afford. So I know I've, I've got £10 that I know what I can buy with those £10, what, I, what things I can kind of I can get. And the, the base assumption behind kind of from 20th century uh, onwards uh, of, of, of governments is kind of we want to try and make people happier, make people kind of happier with their lives by allowing them to buy more stuff. Like that kind of assumption is kind of baked into the real heart of what um, economics is trying to do. And then therefore, kind of by extension, what government should be doing is trying to improve people's welfare, improve people's lot by allowing them to buy more stuff, increasing the kind of their their ability, their, the circle of things that they can afford. I mean, we call it a consumption bundle, like kind of a, a basket of goods that we can we can buy. And money is just a way of measuring that. So... In economics, we kind of we don't really care about how much money you have. Like that's when you're actually doing kind of the theoretical economics with with um, with kind of models and things. We don't. It's not about trying to maximize your money. It's about maximizing it with the stuff that you can buy. You're maximizing your consumption. And um, so, it's money is just it's it's just the it happens to be the way in which we measure your ability to consume. Do you think the outcome of economics needs to change? Then it seems like we've reached the point where people are now over-consuming. And that's often to the detriment of others. We also see in the case of the super wealthy, they're no longer improving their welfare, but just accumulating and, and hoarding this money and keeping it out of the pockets of, of people who desperately need it. Does economics need to change in its assumption of, of what people really need? Yeah, so, well, two things. The first, um, I mean, this is a long discussion. So the, the first kind of is the history of why, why is this what governments do? Why is it trying to maximise consumption? Now, of course, before kind of, the 18th century really governments didn't do that they didn't care i mean governments certainly didn't care about the kind of the poor people it was very much kind of only the the, the ruling classes who they actually cared about and i mean for, for a long time it was just the dictator and his friends whether the king and his friends or whatever which is another word for a dictator so the dictator and his friends were, and maintaining political power was the only thing that the government was trying to do the idea of actually trying to improve the lot of, of the common man that just it just wasn't important and and then when 
we kind of had the Enlightenment, we had uh, ideas that government should be trying to improve a lot of people. There was also debates about how do you do that? How do you measure that? Who do you care? Who do you kind of try and kind of improve? And it was um, Jeremy Bentham, the founder of uh, UCL, who was, uh, he's the one that's quite famous for his, his, part of his will, he required that he, his body be mummified and then on display in UCL full time and his, his, um, his head gets wheeled out for committee meetings it's a strange man his his big idea was that you should um it's called utilitarianism and you should organize society on the principle that you do things that maximize the the welfare of the most people and so kind of pick the things that make the most people happy that's how you those are the kind of ways you should judge actions and so basically what it's saying there is that you everything that you have all the people in society you assign them a number for how happy they are or their welfare however you do that that's obviously a huge debate about how you have to do that and then the way that you organize society is you take all those like numbers of how happy all these people are you add them together so you got some total and they try and maximize that total so you choose things that kind of maximally benefit the um, everybody as, as well as possible and so that's the kind of idea of like how we why we started down this path of kind of um, trying to make people happy, and then there was lots of debate about how do you make people happy, what does it mean to be happy, all this kind of stuff. I mean, for the actual, we need to kind of think about what do we mean by happy there? Like, what's the kind of definition? Like, do we kind of is it is it life satisfaction? There's there's lots of kind of questions about kind of how do you measure people's happiness? Like, what questions do you ask them to try and gauge that? Obviously, that's super difficult. And basically, the reason we settled on consumption and kind of people consuming is that that's something we can get at, something we can measure. Because the whole point of this kind of utilitarianism idea is that we're kind of taking every single person and giving them, assigning them a number for how kind of well off they are or how kind of happy in themselves they are. The way in which you do that, you can't ask people how happy they are because, you know, might have a good day, might have a bad day. One thing that seemed quite easy to do was work out kind of how much, what they can afford. And that's how rich they are, right? And so the it was it was a measurement thing. It was a kind of it wasn't a perfect system. Nobody thought it'd be a perfect system, but it was just a, an easy way to do things, just to measure how um, kind of how much they can afford to buy. How much they can afford to buy is kind of related to how much money they're earning, and so we can measure that. And so because we can measure it, we can target it, and that's what we're going to try and do. It's a, it wasn't a perfect system, but it was a, a practicable system, something that we can actually do. We can afford to try and of we can physically measure how much money people are earning so let's try and go for that and then if you think about adding all people's incomes together and dividing it by and then kind of um, doing it so we maximize everybody if you add everyone's incomes together that's gdp like that's the what the point of that is so uh, what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and maximize gdp and basically how, how that grows over time that's maximizing growth and that's how you arrive at this mantra by which governments are motivated is that maximizing gdp growth should maximize the income of all the people in the country which therefore should allow them to buy more stuff which would make them happier and of course there's more to being happy than, than that but that's almost not the job of the government that was seen as kind of i mean still is seen as a, a more kind of their spiritual realm like the church should be doing that or they should be in their own way kind of they're, they're each responsible for their own pursuit of happiness that's how jefferson um put it in the Declaration of Independence. Everyone's, own, everyone's responsible for their own happiness. All the government can do is give them the means to achieve that, which is by giving them, giving them consumption. Right. So in a previous episode, you said the job of the government is to protect human rights. And it sounds like the job of the economist is the consideration of people's welfare. Now, we've ended up with this yardstick of measuring consumption because it's easy. But now we're living in a time where that yardstick isn't measuring what it's supposed to be measuring. 
are economists discussing the value of, of using this measure or is there something else we could use? Yeah, I mean, there's not only a discussion, it's an old discussion, right? So um, Richard Easterlin in, the, I think it's the 70s, 71 or so, uh, he's called the Easterlin Paradox, where he, he um, laid this point, I and mean, this is the kind of birth of happiness economics. Um, and he made the point that money does make you happier at, at a certain point. If you've got nothing, if you're dirt poor, you're living on the streets and you give someone you know, the ability to afford a, a place to live or things to eat, then they're going to be happier than they would be if they didn't have that stuff. So money makes you happier up to a point. And then he says up to a point, it starts to not do anything because once you've got everything you need, if you think of kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, all these kind of different stuff that you've got, once you've got most of the basic stuff that you need for, for, for life, once you have that, it's not really money that makes you happy. Uh, it's other stuff. It's kind of, you know, nice, good relationships with kind of people, like kind of the, the ability to spend time with kind of friends and family, the ability to kind of, um, and, and more kind of cerebral, more spiritual stuff, I guess, kind of happiness in your own way, all these kind of other things of which are viewed as kind of outside of the purview of economics. It's kind of you're on your own for, for doing those things. And so, and what Eastland said is that we need to kind of try and make people happy up to a certain point. But once they get to that point, this sati- it's a satiation point, money doesn't make you any happier at all. So there's this kind of, cur- this kind of diminishing return to, um, to making people happier. And so his point was that kind of once we get to there, once people are at that level, we should then start the government's job. We shouldn't be looking at GDP growth. They should be looking at other stuff, other ways to, to make people happy, whatever those would be. And so this is, it's called the Easterland Paradox. And, and it kind of, I mean, it seems to make sense to us, right? There's this, this idea that, uh, rich people don't seem that much happier than we are. Like we're all kind of pretty well off. We're probably kind of we're all up. Most of our kind of basic needs uh, are met. And I just when I see Donald Trump, I don't see someone who seems happier than I am. He, he may be far far richer, but he doesn't seem happy. And the same is true of most of the kind of celebrities I'd see. Like they don't they don't seem all that happy. And I mean, well, not, I think Donald Trump may be considerably poorer than you <laughs> when you factor how much well, debt he's in. But even I mean, yeah, Bill Gates, um, Mark Zuckerberg, these people. That they seem normal, right? They just seem like kind of normal. They're not. They're well, not. I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, okay, but they don't seem like they're living on some kind of higher plane of happiness than we are. They just seem like kind of people in the same way. They're not. It's not like they're living in some kind of ecstatic bliss or anything just because they're so wealthy. And so clearly, there is some kind of diminishing returns to wealth. And I mean, we have this this idea of diminishing returns is kind of a ubiquitous idea in in economics, which is that you your first apple tastes great, the second apple tastes good, but not as good as the first apple, and the next apple tastes worse. So it's an idea that each extra bit of consumption makes you happier because you you've got more of it, but less less of a, uh, an increase than before so you have this kind of it's a diminishing return so it makes you happier but not as happy as it was before and then the same could be true if, if you've got that principle that's going to be true for, for money and for wealth in general like and if you you give a dollar to someone who's got nothing and they're going to be a lot happier but then the second dollar is not going to make them quite as happy and then obviously it's um by that principle that it's a really kind of strong principle for egalitarianism because poorer people are going to value money more than rich people because they haven't got as much of it so we should give the poor people money right we should it's a, a strong way to kind of increase the uh the wealth the, that would be a good way to kind of benefit society is there are lots of people who don't have enough so let's give them stuff so i think that was kind of Eastlim was kind of highlighting that there was that there was this real like downward um diminishing returns to making people happier and there's actually a satiation point so we shouldn't if if we kind of think that we are at this satiation point we should stop focusing on growth and start focusing on redistribution. As we've discussed before, capitalism is very much dependent on consumption. 
and we've recognized that you you reach a, a limit in terms of how much wealth you can accumulate and, and you won't get any happier. Sorry for the somewhat provocative phrasing, but is it fair to say capitalism is incompatible with happiness? <laughs> um, well, I, I definitely not. I mean, it definitely um, because, like as I've kind of said before, the the point of capitalism isn't necessarily to kind of make people happier; it's to drive innovation. That's the kind of what we're trying to do: is we're trying to incentivize technological change, technological progress, and that kind of incentivization to improve things. That's what capitalism is for. We're trying to incentivize all those entrepreneurs to go out, innovate, create new goods and services and bring those to market. The The whole point of capitalism is to allow that and to, to do that to happen, which indirectly makes people happier because we get all these cool new stuff to, to play with. But um, yeah, the actual process of kind of trying to create uh, egalitarianism and everything. That's not what capitalism's for. That's, that could be something that governments try and do. And that's what Eastland was saying, that government should maybe focus on that, is that rather than trying to make everyone wealthier, using quite faulty measures. So GDP is a kind of a pretty faulty measure for kind of everyone's wealth because, I mean, specifically it's GDP per capita, which just means that you, you take the total value of kind of all the people's incomes, then divide them by the number of people. Now, if you kind of remember kind of your maths from school, that's an av- a mean, an average... And means have the real problem that they don't care about distribution. Uh, the mean average is really uh, a bad measure of uh, centrality, kind of the, the average person, because it's really skewed by outliers. You can have um, the classic here is that let's say you've got a village with kind of 50 people in, all kind of normal people. As soon as if Bill Gates were to move to that village, by average, all those people are now millionaires because they're like, wow, look at the average, the, the average wealth on those people. You've got Bill Gates, a billionaire, you're still dividing it by the number of people in that village. It looks like the average wealth in that village is everyone is a millionaire because it's been completely skewed by this one rich person. And so the point being there is that averages don't, uh, GDP per capita doesn't care about distribution. And so we can, inc- we can improve our growth figures just by making a few people really, really rich. So tax cuts to the rich are going to improve kind of your GDP growth figures by making everybody wealthier. Uh, by making just a few people wealthier and that that brings up the average and so the Eastern was making this point that maybe kind of the to gdp growth is not a great measure uh, of kind of the the total wealth of everybody in it and even if that's kind of that measure isn't isn't so great there is a, a, a declining value in making people well off because they're they're not happy anymore and i mean the, the point that he was making was that um above a certain point you it doesn't make you happy anymore and what you do is you start using money just to compete with each other and you, there's this whole kind of world of tournament theory and relative preference and things and they're basically just saying that your happiness is dependent on kind of how how wealthy your neighbors are and you want to keep up with the jones keep up with the joneses and you want to make, if they've got a if they've got a big house you want to make sure you have a bigger house and then it's your your actual happiness level isn't kind of related to it's not a fixed thing anymore it's just a kind of need to have more and more money to try and catch up with everybody else and so once you're beyond this kind of certain point of making meeting your needs having money is more about competition at this point and that's not really beneficial for society because you just you get like an arms race going on where the rich people try and get richer and richer. They want to get more and more stuff, more and more conspicuous consumption to try and compete with each other. And as a society, that doesn't really help. I mean, but that's that that exact kind of runaway arms race of consumption is why we have um, such kind of crazy inequality, right? Is that there are some rich people who they need to have that private jet because, hey, look, those the Williamses next door, they have, a, they have two private jets, so I need to have one. That kind of... Uh, arms race kind of competition with each other is something that is not making them happier but um, take those private jets away from them and they'd be a lot less happy because you know the other people have it they get jealous of it so it's kind of Eastland was saying he's trying to get away from this kind of 
run away consumption and try and do some redistribution. Measuring success seems like a very important thing in terms of seeing how you stack up with your neighbours, as you say. I wonder how essential these measures really are. For example, if we change the way GDP was calculated, and rather than a mean average, if we factored in distribution, do you think just changing these measures would affect the decisions of economists and governments? Do you think we would see real societal change if we just change the metrics by which we benchmarked ourselves? De- definitely, right? I mean, the the way in which the the thing that we target, it's kind of like you've got this. Uh, it's the we've got a massive kind of aircraft carrier of a ship with, with going in one direction, and obviously the direction in which you take it, that's going to matter. It's this huge kind of massive thing that we kind of forget about. We're kind of pulling it, we're pulling it in one direction. But certainly, if the if the target is GDP growth, then that's what we're going to try. That's what we're going to go. In. If the target is redistribution, then we'll be we'll go in a different way. Um, I mean, certainly, like I mean, these these problems are, are well known. So we try uh, statisticians try and use median wealth now. So median income is the thing. So if you look at kind of stats of kind of the average wealth, uh, average income, sorry, it'll be median because that's what they've tried to do, and that that that's a measure that isn't as affected by outliers as, as the mean is. But a lot of the reasons for this, a lot of the reasons we measure things the way that we do and we use the targets that we do is because it's so difficult not to. It's so difficult to have another measurement of this. So you need to have data on everybody's income in order to do anything other than... To to get the median, you need to have everybody's income available and then you can kind of divide it up. Whereas with the mean, all you need is the total, which we have ways of measuring, and then you can just divide it by the number of people. It's a lot easier to measure GDP per capita than it is to measure the median uh, uh, median GDP and so it's a kind of it's a problem of practicability of what, what we actually can measure so if, if there were if it was possible to measure these different things then that would definitely make a difference but it's whether it's possible or not and that so that's kind of one thing that's the reason we kind of economists focused on consumption was that that seemed to be the most practical way to do these things that was the most practical way to um to measure people's happiness is that they can they can see that I would imagine every country would know this Though, for example, here in the UK, HMRC must have this data, right? Is it a case of of making this data accessible to make a change? Oh well, I mean, it's not. I mean, it's the so the Office of National Statistics, and every every government has its own statistical agency, and they're the ones doing this. And that's why we can do median wages, is because they have that data. The trouble is that they don't. The very very rich people, we don't really have that information because they might have income from abroad they may have all sorts of other so they, we know the tax they declare here but we don't know what other tax from other countries are so we don't know the kind of the, the very very rich is the big question mark in the income distribution because we don't know the very wealthy are throwing a spanner in the works once again well right we, exactly we just don't know it. and that's why i mean they they do these studies of i mean it, a lot the, it's not a problem of making the data accessible economists have huge amounts of data at their fingertips and uh, the the job of the um the ons and i mean there's, there's various different organisations worldwide that do this stuff. Is to collate all this data, and then we use that to try and to try and work out what's the what are the effects of various policies on things. I mean, that is the role of economics is to try and kind of work out the. There's this general idea that we're trying to maximise welfare. That's the uh, if when you when you study economics, almost the first thing that you do, the first line of any kind of problem, is you you define. Uh, define people's happiness their kind of 
economists call it utility for various reasons. And you define what, what do we mean by people's welfare? What do we mean by people being happy? Uh, so it, it'll be you as a function of some other stuff. And the, the function of the other stuff is almost always consumption. So basically consumption makes you happier. There's normally work in there. So work makes you unhappy. They can throw other things in as well. And then the first line, so it's in maths, it's max U and then open bracket and then C and uh, N or whatever for these various different kind of other things that kind of affect your happiness. Um, and then you're trying to max that thing. You're trying to choose policies to maximize this happiness um and so this is utilitarianism this is idea that we're trying to maximize everyone's welfare and what's in there so if your your original question was kind of what if we included other stuff in that uh would that make a difference and certainly it would and that's what there's there's been discussions about kind of should we be including um carbon uh emissions in our so it should be they're, they're designing a composite index rather than just gdp growth to target we target gdp growth and carbon emissions and to uh inequality there's it's called the gini coefficient is a way of measuring inequality and all sorts of stuff like literacy rates energy use all sorts of different ways in which we could do it and i mean certainly it would make a difference i'd say the government's already do that I'd say that governments don't just care about GDP growth. It's obviously, it's super important, but it's not, I mean, there are, obviously, they care about these things. They, they have data on literacy rates and they go for that. Um, a new thing that the UK is doing is uh, gender gaps. So they kind of, you, you have to, big companies have to now report the average uh, wage of female employees and average wage of male employees. And they have to kind of, they have to say, like, this is the difference in those wages and they have to report that. This has only been going on for a couple of years. But the idea is that the more data you have on this stuff, if you have information on these things, you can then start to, deal with that you can start to be like hey this sector is particularly problematic for for this particular thing or this this area has particularly low literacy rates or this area has big kind of carbon emissions whatever and once you've got that information then you can then target those things so it's not like the government only cares obsessively about gdp figures each department cares about its own little thing um and so i'd say that yeah government already does that that's what the government's trying to do do you think it's fair to say that the better we get at collecting data the better we get at making policy so, I mean, that itself is a really interesting question. That was certainly the mantra of the kind of Tony Blair years. That was the kind of idea is that we'd measure everything and then it would get, we would get better at it. So there was the, I mean, the whole, the whole kind of theme going through The Wire, the, the TV show, was that if you, the, the higher ups had this idea that we could measure crime and then we could use those, those crime measurements to try and make things better. And then the whole problem that The Wire was revealing was that, when you measure these things, what you do is you can you can have unintended consequences. So it was a lot of kind of the murder stats became the hugely important thing for the city. So they were trying to do anything they could to try and adjust those statistics. So not necessarily prevent the murders, but do things to get crimes not classified as a murder. And so or stop people from kind of declaring these things or pushing it into other sectors. I mean, the, 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 the famous one is the... The first episode of the second season, um, McNulty managed to get some, there were some bodies that showed up and he kind of, he showed that because of the tides, at a particular time, they died whilst under the jurisdiction of Baltimore rather than being down the road. And so that kind of led to a whole thing. So just by me- just measuring things, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that things are going to get better because, you know, there's always going to be perverse incentives to try and avoid these things. But I'd say that I guess it's it's an improvement. Like at least we kind of if we have the information that can help us, it's not going to be an easy ride to therefore translate that into policy. But I think that if you've got no idea what the problems are, no idea where the things are, I think that the one of the the big things that economics does, especially it's actually called econometrics. That's the kind of specific type of economics that deals with data and kind of and um, and applied kind of understanding all this stuff. What one of the big things that economics does is to kind of shine a light on this. And actually, the purview of economics has actually massively expanded. I, I don't know how kind of aware people are of this, but the 
the kind of top publications in economics, they're now they're now almost closer to like history and sociology. These things they kind of things like there be studies on kind of the potato famine and kind of how these um, how this actually worked, or studies on kind of what's going on in kind of like crime rates in certain areas and what affects those. They are it's about kind of getting data on really kind of unusual topics and then using just normal economic analysis to turn try and uh, shed a light on a lot of this stuff um the book free economics was all about this so um his name's levitt and stephen levitt was as one of the kind of guys that was really kind of an early passionate kind of person for doing this kind of stuff was to taking using economic techniques and data on kind of unusual areas and kind of revealing that you know, it was about sumo wrestlers and how sumo wrestlers behave and by getting data on all these sumo wrestlers and seeing their kind of how that affected their performance all, all this kind of stuff that's a lot of what economics is is about getting data on things and then trying to actually understand this problem and then t- using that to explain it so yeah i think that in general Getting information helps, but that's obviously that's not the be all and end all. You then need to work out how to use that information to translate into policy. Right, and and that sounds a lot easier said than done. And I can't help but think of when the Tories said they had made significant improvements um, of unemployment numbers, but really they just introduced zero hours contracts. So you had all these people who who weren't actually able to work, but the government could say that people were in employment. So I can't help but wonder if we have all this data, how can we be sure it's measuring the right things or not just moving the goalposts to say we're doing doing the right things, the things we're supposed to be doing? Well, I mean, but that's the job of experts, right? That's why we have academics and we have kind of, kind of economists working on these fields because they can... And they, and they need to be independent of government. They can say, "Hey, all you're doing here is changing that. Um, you're, you're moving the goalposts." I remember the one was that they um, they made school uh, compulsory up to eighteen. Um, this was during the depth of the financial crisis. So you've got a whole load of kids who would have been leaving school at sixteen and then going and adding to the unemployment figures. Now they have to stay in school, and so those extra two years that reduced the unemployment figures. So certainly these things can happen. You can always you can have perverse incentives. You can have um, governments shifting things. These are always going to happen, and it's the job of economists really to work out how this is going to happen they can do it theoretically they can say like hey imagine if you, they can do kind of a mathematical model and they can show these exact behaviors happening and they can be like well if this happens in our models it's going to happen in real life too because the same um, mechanisms are at play and then you've got the econometricians or the kind of applied people who will get in the data and they can provide evidence of this and they can say hey all you've done there is change the goalposts all you've done your particular policy hasn't actually helped anyone so the, that's that's why economics is such a kind of a rich, uh, a, a really wide field. It's not just money and interest rates and inflation. It's way wider than that. It really kind of looks at all different areas and how it can really benefit people because it's it's not about just getting the information. It's getting the information and then really digging deep into what it means, improving the kind of connections and the, the subtleties within that data and what's actually going on at play. And I think that's it's 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 way deeper than I think many people realise. It's not just some kind of ivory tower experiment. There was a lot of kind of really interesting work where they actually kind of go and get their hands dirty and see what's actually kind of going on in the field. And I think that's yeah, the best economics. That's exactly what they're doing. They're trying to illuminate weird areas of the world. Post-Crisis Economics is presented by Will Thomas and Tim Jackson, Doctor of Economics at the University of Liverpool. Continue the conversation on Twitter at Post-Crisis Pod. Thanks for listening. Bye.